Terrence Malick, if you um, are familiar with this filmmaker, he, uh, his most recent film uh, is called A Hidden Life. Uh, and, and A Hidden Life follows the real-life story uh, of an Austrian peasant farmer named Franz who refuses to fight for the Nazis in World War II. Now, Franz is just an ordinary guy. He lives in a small village, and he's working his land when war breaks out. He actually goes to basic training and is sent home, um, and, but, then, but then is called up again. And so, so, so in, the, in the interim there, uh, Franz is married uh, to his wife, Fanny, and, and, they, uh, and they have three daughters together. And the film shows um, that this family, they're, they're pretty, um, they're, they're ordinary people, but, but they're staples in this tight-knit farming community that they, that they live in. If, if you have had the opportunity to see this movie, it's a rather long movie, and, and, and you would agree that most of the scenes that are in the movie, um, they, they just kind of depict this ordinary life of farmers in the village. So there's people just harvesting crops and talking and kind of, kind of working the dirt and working the ground. Uh, in fact, like the movie is admittedly pretty slow going, which I actually think highlights the title of the movie uh, even more, just the ordinariness of some of the things that are going on. And in the movie, here's what happens. As the events of World War II intensify, um, Franz and, and the other young men in the village that, he's, that, he's, that he lives in, they're called up to fight. And so the first requirement, if you were um, part of the Third Reich or, or uh, a Nazi soldier, um, was in, in, in this kind of training before before you got sent in was to swear an ultimate allegiance to Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. Despite the pleas of his neighbors, um, Franz refuses to swear the oath. And as one would imagine, when fascist dictators like Hitler, um, uh, like whenever, whenever you refuse to swear an oath to them, they kind of take issue with you questioning their authority. And so the bulk of the film highlights this turmoil of how Franz and his wife wrestle with the knowledge that this decision that he is making means, um, it, it means his inevitable arrest it means brutal beatings. It means even, as you can imagine, uh, a death sentence. At one point, the village priest is even telling Franz, and like, like he's, he's, he's saying to him, like, like you need to reconsider this. You know what's going to happen here. And Franz, because of his commitment to Christ, he just can't do it. Franz is arrested. He's taken to prison after prison after prison. Um, along the way, he's beaten mercilessly as he waits months for his trial to come. During his time in prison, he and his wife are writing letters back and forth um, to, uh, for, to one another to strengthen and encourage one another. And what I love about this, the, the film also is that it shows the tension even that they have as a married couple because his wife knows and he knows what it means if he doesn't give authority um, to, to, to Hitler alone. He knows that it's going to mean he's leaving a widow and three children. His wife knows this as well. And so there's this tension all along as they struggle um, to this commitment that he's made. His wife and daughters, as they're alone in the village trying to bring in the harvest, um, it shows um, their own struggle of, of people in the village are having hostility toward them because they believe that, um, that, that Hitler and the Third Reich is actually going to come and, and take out some of um, their aggression on them because of um, this man that lives among them. But in this, Franz continues to, to stand up for his beliefs and is executed by the Third Reich in August 1943 and he leaves behind his wife and his three daughters. Now, this movie is a tragic story, no doubt. I, I love 
um, how it portrays the events of this real-life man who wrestles with this real-life thing, this real-life huge thing. It shows tension in his marriage. It shows tension in his family. It shows tension in his village, tension in his, in his country. And there's this one scene that, that stood out to me in the movie. And it's this scene where, where this, this chained prisoner, Franz is, is this chained prisoner, and this Nazi soldier standing over him just beating him. This unnamed soldier is screaming at him. And I don't remember the, the exact words that the soldier's screaming, but there's something along the lines of, you are only one man. You will be long forgotten when you die. You cannot change the world. And here's the thing. The life that Franz lived, it was a, a life that was essentially hidden. But the thing about it is, is that today we know the story and we know the name of Franz Jägerstadter. But the Nazi who told Franz um, his life didn't matter goes unnamed in the story. In fact, Franz's life, I mean, he didn't have any power. Why in the world, I mean, in the situation where he's, he's bound in front of a soldier, a, a whole, a whole a, a battery of soldiers in a prison, he's bound and has no power whatsoever. Why in the world is a soldier with a gun, with the Third Reich and all the German army behind him feel the need to scream loudly at Franz? And this is the reason. It's because the hidden life of Franz Jägerstadter was a powerful testimony. Day after day, Franz had to wake up and recommit himself all over again in the face of suffering and in the face of pain. And at the end of the movie, there's this quote by George Eliot that's shown. It's where Terrence Malick gets the name of the movie. And this quote is just amazing. When the quote comes up, it says this. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owning to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. So beautiful. Let's begin reading Philippians chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. Paul writes to the Philippian church, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment or, and dare even speak, um, dare even more to speak the word fearlessly, to be sure some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death." The Apostle Paul, 
has spent nearly three decades working as a tent maker, traveling from city to city, preaching the good news of Jesus to everyone. He's been establishing churches in cities all over the known world. One of these cities was this little Roman colony called Philippi. And the church that Paul started here, we talked about last week, they, they are the recipient of this letter that we hold in our hands this morning. And, and here, here's what we need to realize, and we're going to come back to this a lot. This letter is not written from the comfort of Paul's home. It's not written for the comfort of Paul's study or his office. In verse 12, we are reminded of Paul's situation. He is imprisoned, likely in the city of Rome, And he's awaiting his trial and what we know will eventually be his execution at the hands of the Roman emperor. Now we know some of what Paul has endured while he is a prisoner. He's been shuffled from city to city. Uh, Eventually he lands in Rome. And and, and here's the thing. What we need to realize about about Roman prison is that it's not like what we think about jail today in the sense that they have to provide you with food. Um, If no one brought Paul food, um, Rome didn't usher him down three meals a day. If no one brought him food, he didn't eat. So in other words... Rome didn't pay for prisoners to eat. I'm sure he suffered physical beatings. We know from the book of Acts that on the way to Rome, he actually, there's a shipwreck, and so he's endured that um, on his transport to Rome. I think it's fair to think about the events of the life of Franz and sort of imagine that this is, it, it would be at least as difficult as the character from A Hidden Life. In this letter to the church that he loves and who love Paul, that partnership language we saw last week, Paul is able to say something profound in the situation that he's experiencing in prison. He says this, all that has happened to me has really, has has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, how in the world can a situation as horrific as Paul's serve to advance the gospel? Well, he gives us a couple of reasons how, we, how he knows this and how gracious God is to even reveal these couple of examples to him while he's in prison. Lots of times we can look back a year, five, ten years, and we see, okay, that's the Lord allowed this to happen for this particular purpose. In fact, Paul is, is a student of, of, the, of the book of the Old Testament scriptures where we read about Joseph is able to look at um, his brothers selling him into slavery and then that getting him into the, the, like the house of, 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 of Potiphar and then um, where he gets uh, put in prison because um, Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to sleep with her and then at the end of all this, after all this suffering, Joseph is able to look and, and say, hey, to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And this is the story of the whole Bible. And Paul's, But Paul is here is able to say that, but he's able to say, here's some real practical evidences that we've been able to see because of my imprisonment. The first one is the fact that, he, every, that everyone knows, when they hear about Paul of Tarsus, they know why he's imprisoned in Rome. People in the imperial guard, and I want you to understand that this imperial guard is not just, I mean, if you think about Star Wars for a second, the imperial guards there, like they're the ones that are closest to the emperor, 
right? These are the guards who are personally responsible for guarding um, Caesar. He says, everyone knows. And I imagine it like this. When they hear the name Paul of Tarsus, they immediately recognize that he is the one who is in prison for professing that Jesus, this, this, this Galilean peasant, is king of the universe. I'm sure many people think, why wouldn't he just stop? Why wouldn't he just pay lip service to Caesar and get out of jail? Paul says, no. And that leads us to the second evidence of gospel advancement. Paul says the brothers, the churches, the family of God have been emboldened to speak the gospel even more because of Paul's story. Think about the tension here. If, if, Paul was your, if Paul was your pastor and he was put in jail, there would be some of you who would be embarrassed at the name of Paul. And certainly that was the case. Others may counsel Paul even, even as the priest did in a hidden life, pay lip service to Caesar in order to save your life. Some would, some would hide for fear of being arrested themselves. Like if they look at this, Paul is in prison, they'll probably do the same to me. But Paul says, and, and that's true across the board. There are people in all those walks of light, but Paul is able to say there are people who have been given more boldness to preach Christ without fear. I just want to say, I want to go on record and say this morning that um, the year 2020 has been an absolute dumpster fire so far. This past week in particular has been gut punch after gut punch after gut punch. The, the thousands um, who have contracted COVID-19 uh, over this past week, those who have even died from the virus, Ahmaud Arbery, a black man Robbie mentioned earlier who was literally hunted down and murdered as he was jogging um, for supposedly fitting the description of a criminal. More broadly, I think here um, is important the fact that the entire black and brown community who don't get the privilege of processing this information as a single solitary event but who are reminded yet again that for them there is a death sentence attached to jogging in the wrong neighborhood if you happen to be black. There was news two days ago that another influential Jesus-loving pastor took his own life. So much loss, so much brokenness, so much pain. And it, like we sit in that, But I think there is something that we can take from Paul here and, and, and hear me say, like, like, go back to what we talked about in the confession. Like, we can't talk of healing until we talk of honesty, right? But healing can happen. And honesty can happen. Something that we can be deeply encouraged by, that I'm deeply encouraged by, and how the present moment that we find ourselves in has caused so many more gospel conversations to take place. I want you to know that I want to be very clear when I say this. I hate racism. 
the, the racism that is explicit in the world in KKK rallies and swastikas and ethnic slurs and the racism that is implicit in systems and structures and even in my own heart that I don't even see. I hate the fact that there are people suffering right now who are indoors and and can't get out. I hate hearing that anyone takes their own life, y'all, anyone. But it hits me harder um, as as a pastor when the man is a pastor whose home that I've been in, whose family I've seen, and whose influence, especially the last couple years of watching this man in his restoration process and him smit to the Spirit and His leading has been so powerful and impactful for me personally. I think the life of Paul shows us in word and deed a man who suffers deep sorrow and also experiences deep joy. And family, I, I want this in my own life. And I want this to mark your lives and the life of not just our church, but every church. Hear me say, hear Paul say, hear Jesus say, life is hard. Jesus is real. And he is at work. I love that I'm seeing people who would not normally ask questions about Jesus begin to ask questions about Jesus. I love that I'm seeing men and women with genuineness and gentleness and respect giving answers for why they believe that Jesus is good news for such a time as this. Paul knows this. He said it here in this text that we just read. He says, he says some people, I mean, he's not, he's not in the dark. He says some people are mentioning Jesus, and they're doing it for their own gain. In fact, some of them are doing it just to cause me more harm. And to be clear, what I don't believe here is that Paul's talking about people who are peddling a false gospel. If you've read the book of Galatians, like you get an idea for how, how Paul speaks out against people who are preaching a false gospel. He's very clear that the gospel they're preaching is not a gospel at all. This is something different in this text. I believe what Paul is saying is that the people here who are speaking about Jesus, really, they're just trying to, they're speaking the truth about Jesus, but the motive that they have is to cause him pain and out of this kind of selfish ambition that they're trying to vie for some sort of position. Paul says, doesn't make any difference to me. Because the deal is, I'm, I am one man here, and I'm in jail, and I'm going to proclaim Christ with my life. And if these people are out there proclaiming Christ, I don't care if it's to cause me harm or not. Jesus being proclaimed is all that matters. Paul's prayer here is that Jesus would be honored, embodied in his life or in his death. And then he goes on verse 21. Check this out. He says this. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Now, what you're going to find as we walk through Philippians is that this little short four-chapter book is chocked full of these, these often quoted um, Christian verses that we see pop up on posters and coffee cups and doilies and t-shirts. Verse 21 is one of those such verses. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, in context, I believe Paul is telling us exactly how difficult it is to navigate the present age, the shadowlands, as C.S. Lewis puts it, where the sun is always shining someplace else, around the bend or over the hill. Paul's desire is stated clearly. He believes that his death would be a gain because he would get to finally walk around the corner and see the light that he's been waiting his entire life to see. He would get to be with Jesus. Some of you long for that. He knows. He knows and he feels it. He writes from this prison cell. From his own experience, he knows how difficult life is. When he says to live is Christ, the image that we should run far away from is this image of a feather-haired, fair-complected, blue-eyed Jesus wearing spotless white robes, dishing out religious platitudes to clean, healthy, well-mannered, upwardly mobile people. That ain't the Jesus of the Bible. Paul wants us to remember the Jesus that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53. The suffering servant who takes upon himself the suffering of the oppressed, the outcast, the sick, and the vilest of vile. You see, there are multiple verses in the Old Testament that tell us that God hears us and God sees us in our suffering and in our groaning. And the story of God is replete with those those places in the Old Testament. But here's what I want to tell you. God is so smart that he knows that if that's all we have, then we can just say, yeah, right. You see, here's the thing. We know that God really does hear us and he really does see us because he literally writes himself into human history and he becomes um, as one of us and suffers with us and for us so that we can have a peculiar joy in knowing that we are not alone in our affliction. What Paul is modeling for us in this prison cell is the very life of Jesus himself. And he's convinced that he, in this, he walks away. I love this. He's convinced, you know what, I'm going to live longer because the Lord wants me to live longer to bring joy to these people in my affliction, to stir the affections of more brothers and sisters. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Every time I hear this verse, I think of my granny England. And I can remember her saying um, this, this phrase to me near the end of her life. And it was one of those, um, I don't have a ton of memories about, about her, but this always stands, every time I read this verse, I think of her and the moment when she said it to me. Um, it was near the end of her life. And when she said it, it was the most wonderfully odd, beautiful statements that, that I had ever heard a person speak. 
years ago when she spoke it, I knew it was from the Bible, but I never heard a human say it and actually mean it. You see, my granny had this peculiar joy that, that, that Paul is talking about here in the book of Philippians. You see, her hands were not too firmly gripped on her own life. And you need to hear me say, she loved life. She had a hard life, but she loved life. She also had a laugh that would light up the room, and she could make her grandkids laugh. I remember her popping her false teeth out, and all this, like, our, as kids, like, we'd be small, she'd pop her false teeth out, and we'd run like crazy because she looked like a monster when she did it, and she would just cackle and laugh. And I mean, it was so infectious. And as much as she loved grandkids and her kids and her husband, um, she, as much as she loved all that, she was perfectly fine. And I would say she even yearned with eager expectation to go and to be with her King Jesus. She lived a beautiful, hidden life that advanced the gospel. We're talking about her in 2020. Look at verse 27. Paul says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether, I come to, then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on, behalf, on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer with him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. All of these verses that we read today, phrases like, rejoice in suffering, they're, they're easy verses for us to read, family. But when we bring this to bear in our own lives, and in, in the ways that we suffer, and some of us, every single day, rejoicing in suffering, well, that's a hard pill to swallow. Paul's not under the impression that this isn't a struggle for us. Read, read what he says again in verse 30. Underline it. It's a struggle. I, I imagine in the narrative of this story as he's writing these words, there are things that he's, he's writing, he's reminding himself. The Spirit's giving him these words to, as a reminder to himself. The reason there is struggle in the whole is because we are a people since our first parents who were always hoping in things that overpromise and underdeliver. We're always looking for shalom or total flourishing, and we believe that something or out, someone outside of Jesus is going to give that to us. Paul mentions this idea of citizenship here in verse 27. And Philippians is the book that's going to help us unpack this idea of citizenship. So we'll look at that a little bit more at length in the coming weeks. Um, it's, it's a theme that's all throughout this letter. And here's what you need to know this week about this. The city of Philippi was actually considered, quote, little Rome. 
And, and so you think about this. They wanted to model themselves after the city of Rome. In fact, what would happen is because Philippi was in such a, a great area, what would happen is soldiers would retire and, the, and they would actually move to Philippi. So it's kind of like the Florida of Europe. Um, and they, they'd move there and there were so many retired soldiers and so many Romans that were there um, that, that, I mean, it just kind of took on. If you go, if you go um, there today and look at some of the ruins, you'll see just Latin written everywhere where it's almost like it's, it is little Rome. They wanted people, like they, they, they had pride in their city, and they wanted people, the people there to experience life as they would experience if they lived in Rome. And so if you've seen, basically here's the thought. If you've seen Philippi, you've seen a small picture of Rome. Now imagine for a moment what life in Rome in the first century would look like. Place of sensuality. Probably be a, a place of bustling economy. Lots of people want to be in Rome. There's lots of diversity in Rome. A place where you could, you could basically, Romans would allow you to worship any god you wanted to as long as you claim Caesar as numero uno. Lots of energy, place of distinction, prominence, power. Philippi bought into that same idea. But the fact remains that the cities that we live in They're trying to communicate to us and prop up this idea of this dominant narrative. Rome and Philippi would say, here's the good news that you can't live without. Here's what's going to bring you ultimate joy. Here's what's going to bring you ultimate peace. Here's what's going to bring you ultimate contentment. And when you don't have that, you need to strive for it, is what the city is going to tell you. And both of these cities would seek to evangelize you toward living as citizens who were bought into this, this good news that they're peddling. Our city, Nashville, has a narrative as well. And you may ask yourself, what's that narrative? Well, we're not going to get into all these, but think about their performance industry and art. Image. Look the part. Perform well. Once you've kind of outkicked your coverage on uh, on, on making hits, we'll, we'll get somebody else. Um, we've got a ton of them in queue. Nashville's a center of education. Knowledge is power. The more we know, the more power we have. Nashville is diverse and eclectic. It's an it city. And, and the downside of that is, is that what happens is, um, in, in, our, in all of our diversity, uh, some, of the, some of the urban core of, of, of people that, or neighborhoods that have been historically black, rising rent costs and gentrification actually kick the diversity out. Old Nashville versus new Nashville. It's a center for religion. On one hand, you've got dead orthodoxy. And on the other hand, you've got uh, liberal orthodoxy. And then if you say that you're a follower of Jesus, and well, you have to unpack that big time in a place like Nashville. So those are some of the cultural narr- narratives. But here's the transition that Paul makes. He says, living life as a citizen of heaven, a life um, that, that, that lives as Christ lives, he says, do that even at the expense of your own lives. And he says, when you do that, um, you will absolutely advance the good news of Jesus. And here's why. Because that is a life that resists bowing your knee to these idols of the broken world that you live in. In Paul's situation, he was pigeonholed for being a prisoner. But in his cell, he saw that he was more free in Christ than ever before. 
And here's why. Because the buzz on the street was not Paul, Paul, Paul. It was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The struggle to recognize and reorient his heart in this way is, and our hearts in this way, is certainly a struggle. But the payoff here was that this joyful letter that he wrote to these dear brothers and sisters in this little church in Philippi is hundreds of years later, we're able to open it up. And today, in May the 10th, 2020, we're able to struggle as we read this same letter and dare to hope in the same Christ that Paul placed his trust in. Do you see how the gospel was advanced in that difficult time? Do you see how the gospel has advanced in, 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 over the last 2,000 years through difficult times? I have to believe that God is and he will do the same work in and through this body today, Resonate. Tim Keller says a couple things were true about the early church just as they were living in a dominant culture. They were, he says they're constantly having to out-narrate the culture. Basically give the culture a better story. He said one of the things that marked Romans during this time was that they were stingy with their money and their possessions and they were generous with their sex lives. He says sex and money are basically two things that they believe to be good news. Have all of it you can. The thing that Keller says marked the church of Jesus Christ in this culture, the way the church of Jesus Christ out-narrated the culture was that they were generous with their money and possessions and they were stingy with their sex lives. Like it was so countercultural for them to say one man and one woman for life. For citizens of heaven, they believe um, the good news um, that, that's only found in, in the life of Jesus. He gives up his position of riches, and, him, and he gives himself up for the purpose of restoring life to the spiritually impoverished. He has committed his whole self to the restoration and the renewal of his one bride, the church, and he's faithful to her. To live as Christ means that we are able to empty ourselves of the things outside of Jesus that we are trusting in to give us shalom or total peace. This idea of struggle, because we're not always cognizant of these things, like this is why our faith community is so important. This is why, this is why Paul says um, that we must contend together in one spirit, together as a people who are willing to first and foremost follow the way of Jesus as our risen king. And as we do this, to listen to the spirit, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead and struggle together with one another, bringing beauty to one another and joy to the city around us, especially, especially in times like the ones that we find ourselves in today because God has promised that he will advance the gospel in this time and in this place. Amen? Yeah. Here's some questions that I want us to interact around this morning. What do you sense Jesus saying to you this morning? What do you sense Jesus saying to you? If you're on this, this live stream and you've been a follower of Jesus, where are the areas of your life where you've been given to 
um, making a good thing an ultimate thing, a good thing a God thing that you need to repent of. Maybe Jesus, what's Jesus saying to you this morning? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, where are those things in your life? What is the, what's the thing that, is, that, is, that, that, that you can look at and you're pursuing as good news? Would you be willing to trust Jesus today as the ultimate good news, as your king? What do you sense Jesus saying to you this morning? How does the good news, second question, how does the good news of Jesus in the lives of his people advance in our city under these circumstances that we find us, ourselves in. When we think about relation, relational brokenness, when we think about spiritual brokenness, when we think about physical brokenness, when we think about emotional brokenness, where are the places that we as a church family can give people good news in these four areas? How does the good news of Jesus give you a peculiar joy to engage your city. So how does the good news of Jesus in the lives of his people advance in our city under these circumstances? And how does the good news of Jesus give you a peculiar joy to engage the city of Nashville? How do our hidden lives in the face of struggle, our own idolatry or someone else's idolatry, Portray the peculiar joy of Christ here in this place for the advancement of the gospel. How do our hidden lives in the face of struggle, our own idolatry or someone else's, portray the peculiar joy of Christ here in this place for the advancement of the gospel? And then finally... In your mind, what does it look like to contend together in one spirit for faith in the gospel? In your mind, what does it look like to contend together in one spirit for the faith of the gospel? I want to pray this prayer for us. And we're going to do communion in just a minute. And these questions are in the chat feature. Um, feel free to interact with those. Feel free to journal those. Feel free to think through these as we're, um, as we're taking communion in just a minute. But let me pray this prayer for us, and then I'll set up communion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you right now in this time and in this place help us to know of your great love for your people. Lord, begin saving work in someone this morning. Lord, give joy to your people so that we may sing praises to you, our Lord and our King. Advance the gospel in us during this time, especially in this time, so that the nations would be glad and rejoice in you. We thank you, Jesus, our King. It's in your name we pray. Amen.